Pearl Church exists to express a sacred story and to extend a common table that animate life by love. A primary expression of our sacred story is the weekly sermon. If our sermons inspire you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully, would you consider supporting our work? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story. As we gather this morning, God, we pray that our community will more and more be a place of peace, that our individual lives, trusting in your love and your way, will contribute to your dream of peace in the world today. In your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Today we are drawing to a close our sermon series, Evolving Christianity. Over the last few weeks, we have explored what we mean when we say that Pearl Church is a local expression of evolving Christianity. Rather than remaining static, our engagement with God and our sacred story impels us to keep moving forward as our understanding of divine love deepens and expands. At Pearl, this looks like, and we've looked at it the last few weeks, necessarily deconstructing harmful Christianity, unreservedly celebrating the full participation of women and the LGBTQIA community at every level of our community, a deep commitment to working against racism, safely nurturing kids and youth in the ways of divine love, and wholeheartedly declaring God's favor upon and presence with every person. Today we're exploring our last distinctive of evolving Christianity, a focus on non-violent and non-dominion theology. In my mind, the first and last of these distinctives of evolving Christianity could really serve as bookends for all that we're trying to foster here at Pearl Church. We all have inherited this Western American Christianity that's become entangled in ideas and in practices and in politics that we have seen cause real harm. And of necessity, that means there's some work to do, right? Some deconstructing, uh, maybe pulling down, but also clearing space, opening room to rethink, to listen again to voices that have been marginalized, to return home to the heart of Jesus's way. So we listen and we make room for the voices and experiences of wisdom of those who have been most harmed, women, the LGBTQ community, racial minorities, children and youth, and all those who have been told they're beyond the bounds of acceptability. And that work of listening and making room isn't just about tearing down, it's about building up, building up a way of being Christian that is not violent, that is not dominating. We're building up a way of being Christian that makes peace. Our dream at Pearl is that these ancient words from our Hebrew scripture reading today would at last come true. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord.
Another way of saying this is that we want our Christian faith to make us as a community and us as individuals really good for the world. Good for the world. What exactly is Christianity good for? When I was growing up, I had an answer to that question. It was, it was given to me. Uh, it was a really clear answer. What is Christianity good for? Well, Christians are here to save people, right? We're here to save people, which means to bring them into relationship with God so they can be forgiven and go to heaven when they die, which sound, that all sounds very nice, right? Very good. But of course, there was another part we didn't say too loudly in my community, uh, which is interesting because there are communities that did say this part loudly, and mostly we just thought that they had bad taste. Uh, this is the part you, you know, you're just not supposed to mention this part. The part you don't say too loudly was, your job as a Christian, the reason you're good in the world is you go and tell people that God really loves them and has a wonderful plan for their lives, and if they don't accept that wonderful plan, then that same God will torture them forever right? Because that's what everybody really deserves. See, this is what we mean when we talk about theological violence. Theological violence. Believe or else. Repent or else. Always or else. Right? And maybe we don't speak that or else too loudly, but it's always there in the background operating closely tied to theological violence is theological dominance, right? Because if people like us have the full truth, if we have all the answers, well, then we are obligated to get other people to become just like us, and we are destined to control because we are right. We don't have to look far to see how ubiquitous religious violence and religious domination are in our world. I mean, just these past few weeks, right, our news feeds are again flooded with the horrors of war, most recently between Israel and Hamas. And that same horror is deepened when we reflect that religious texts and religious traditions have fueled and justified the hatred that these texts have fueled and justified anti-Semitic and anti-Muslim sentiment. These texts have fueled and justified anti-Palestinian and anti-Israeli sentiment and action. What we're watching is the unfolding cycles of religious violence that have been cascading back and forth over the millennia. And this is just one example But the violence is closer to home, too. Uh, In fact, I think the ubiquity of religious violence and domination becomes clearer when we descend down into the daily of our lives. I mean, who of us have not been told violent stories about God, about what will happen to us if we don't shape up? Who of us has not been told that we are unable to trust our own thoughts, our own feelings, our own bodies and experiences, and instead we need to submit ourselves to an authority who has the real truth? And who of us also has not used, at some point, threat or manipulation or power to try to get others around us to behave, to get in their lane 
I mean, we all know what this is like, right? We, we lean into a situation that feels unstable to us, and we just lean in with a little thread of anger, or a little thread of withdrawal, or a little thread of punishment, just to nudge the people in our lives to where we think they need to be. Isn't all this violence really in the end about control? I mean, we live in a world that feels so uncertain, where scarcity and loss loom large, and we feel that if we don't grab control and make things turn out right, then everything's going to fall apart and the worst will happen. It seems so unavoidable to use violence, to use threat, doesn't it? I mean, how else can we make sure that our loved ones are safe, that our interests are protected, that everything turns out okay? I mean, think about it this way. How many stories or movies can you think of where the hero does not at some point need to take control of the situation to make everything turn out all right by whatever means are necessary, usually dubious ones, right? Now, into this world of ubiquitous violence, Jesus comes teaching a way that is meant to foster peace. But the way that Jesus goes about this can look really odd to us. Uh, it's a very strange way. I mean, think about it. If you were tasked with starting a movement, okay, it's your job to start a movement that will transform the whole world into a city of peace, right? Just a small job, right? Well, wouldn't you first try to get maybe some top names, some, some wealthy patrons, some big politicians, get some power behind the movement, right? I mean, you'd go to the top to make things happen. But Jesus does his ministry mostly in the back villages of an oppressed people. He chooses primarily poor and uneducated commoners to be his students and his messengers, and he avoids and even distances himself from the various kinds of authorities available. And just three years in, he gets himself killed. I mean, what's that strategy? Well, first off, a little, a little historical background that I think is important for understanding Jesus' way, why, why he goes about the things the way he does. So while Jesus himself is born into a Jewish people that are oppressed and ruled by the Roman Empire, this is far from the first empire the people have suffered under. For nearly 600 years, there's been this revolving door of empires overtaking Israel in waves. The Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, right? Because Jerusalem has this really impressive, important location right at the turn of the Mediterranean Sea. So if you're a people over here or down here or over here, and you want to take over these people or these people or these people, you have to go through Israel to get there, right? So the, anyone who wants an empire with control over the Mediterranean is going to need control over this little Jewish territory. And the various exiles and rebuildings of Jerusalem under the Assyrians and Babylonians are recorded in the Hebrew scriptures in our Bible. But, but it was really the Greek occupation that in some ways the, was the most traumatic and shaping for this people. Uh, and we, we find that recorded in what we call the Apocrypha in the books of the Maccabees. Uh, because the Greeks, what they really wanted was to assimilate everyone to Greek culture. And so they wanted to eradicate local cults and local worship. And so the Greeks try and shut down the temple worship. They try to abolish the practice of Sabbath. All these Jewish distinctives, they try to outlaw and get the people of Israel to become just Greek. 
Well, against this rises a resistance led by a Jewish family, the Maccabees, who successfully get an army together, throw off the Greek oppression, and liberate the people, at least partially. At least they secured the religious freedom of the Jewish people of the day against the tyrannical empire. So, okay, with that as background, four centuries later, Jesus is living in a Roman-occupied state, and the Jewish people have in the back of their minds a model for how liberation is going to work. Someone is going to rise up, like the Maccabees, to overthrow the Roman power with violence. Peace is going to be achieved by power. And this use of violence is even further rooted in a theological picture of violence. I mean, think of all the places in the Bible where violence is done in the name of God, from the book of Joshua to the many psalms that call out for God to destroy our enemies, right? I mean, this whole worldview just undergirds political violence with these theologically violent images. Okay, so stepping into this context... As Jesus becomes popular among the people, the expectation is that he is going to become this Maccabean leader who will lead the people in revolt, that this is going to be God's justice against the enemies of God's people. Now, I tell all this story in part to make this point, that Jesus was stepping into a world that was just as fraught and complex and as charged as our world is today. If Jesus were born today in Afghanistan, or in Ukraine, or in Gaza, or in North Ireland, Jesus would be facing similarly complex, entrenched histories of violence and traumatized peoples, right? We'd be very similar dynamics. And in this light, Jesus' way stands out. Because Jesus doesn't attempt to amass power or wealth, doesn't go to the politically or religiously powerful, doesn't try to get control at all. Jesus doesn't draw on the many violent images of God that would have been available, readily available. Instead, Jesus drops into the lives of traumatized and oppressed people and teaches them to entrust themselves to divine love. This is what Jesus does. His whole plan seems to have to been to create communities of people in the midst of this traumatizing, oppressive environment who see their lives as held by the goodness of God, no matter the circumstances. I mean, when we read Jesus' teachings, so you take the Gospels, right, and you read Jesus' teachings, and it can be very interesting to read them kind of out of context, but think about dropping them into the context of this people enduring an ongoing violent occupation. Right? So, for example, imagine traveling to Ukraine and teaching, don't worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, or your body, what you will wear. Isn't life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Right? That feels different in that context, doesn't it? Or imagine going to Gaza today and teaching, those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life will save it. it has a different resonance, right? What comes out when we place Jesus in these contexts is his insistence 
that the way forward in a world like ours is for individual, everyday people to come to see their lives held by divine love. To see God not through a lens of theological violence, but to see the divine as trustworthy and good, so much so that in Jesus' way, we don't need to be in control. In a few different places, Jesus describes this teaching as leaven or as a mustard seed. Leaven. Uh, if you've made a sourdough, you know that you, you take this starter, you know, this really stinky starter, these yeasties that have been bubbling, bubbling, bubbling away. You just need a little pinch of it, a little bit of it, to, you know, hundreds of grams of flour and water. And you would work it in and you knead it in and you knead it in and, and those little yeasts take off doing their work, making the whole loaf rise beautifully. Or a mustard seed. This little tiny speck of a seed that finds its way into the ground and then explodes. Uh, and some of our translations talk about it as a tree, but if you've seen wild mustard, it's not really a tree. It's this invasive shrub that takes over your whole garden and gets everywhere. It just, off it goes. And it's got tendrils going in every direction, and it just is wild with flowers and growth. And what is the leaven and what is the mustard seed that has such disproportionate effects to its apparent size in the world? Well, that little starter is small communities of everyday people who have really come to trust that God is love. That the basic nature of our reality is not scarcity or loss, but goodness and tenderness. Why little communities? I mean, this is an interesting question. The problem of violence and dominion in our world doesn't just reside at top levels, right? With generals and presidents and prime ministers and terrorists. I mean, let's say that somehow every world leader gathered and agreed beyond all expectation to a ceasefire. Just, we're going we're gonna to stop it. We're going to end battles. We're going to surrender the nuclear arms. We're going to put a stop to atrocities. And that would be incredible, right? Everyone just stops. But just think about the millions and millions of peoples whose lives have already endured trauma, who are holding scars, who are wounded, whose loved ones are gone, and who have understandably learned to fear and hate their enemies. Our world leaders can't legislate those hearts into rest, into forgiveness, right? I mean, how long would it take for the cycles of violence just to start back up again. What Jesus knows is that peace comes from the ground up. Peace comes when the people who have every reason to resent and fear and try to control instead come to see themselves, to really see themselves living in a world where divine love is truly trustworthy. Which is also to say of people who do not need to seize control. I know this is all kind of like murky because it sounds so like pie in the sky and hypothetical. So I think a few pictures might help us here, see what this might look like. And I'm going to pull some pictures uh, from nerdy sources. This, some of them are going to be uh, lit literarily nerdy and some are going to be theologically nerdy. So here we go. Uh, in the first volume of The Lord of the Rings, you knew it was coming, The Lord of the Rings, Frodo and his companions bring the one ring with them into Lothlorien. Uh, where the ancient and wise elf Galadriel dwells. 
And Frodo feels his inadequacy, right, in, in carrying this ring. It feels too big of a task for him. So at one point, he freely offers the ring of power to Galadriel. And we briefly see her temptation, her desire to take the ring and wield its power to overthrow Sauron, and her knowledge, though, that she would then just become another dark power of violence. And, you know, from this, like, big, explosive temptation, she shrinks down back to normal size, and she fades, and she says, I've passed the test. I will diminish and go into the West and remain Galadriel. Her wisdom here is that as powerful as she is, to use power against power is not going to bring peace. Instead, she releases control and trusts Frodo. In the last volume of the Harry Potter novels, this is the other nerdy thing you knew was coming, Harry has realized that his life... Okay, spoiler alert. If you haven't read the seventh book yet, I, I can't help you at this point. It's been years, but stop your ears. Okay. Uh, in the last volume of the Harry Potter novels, Harry has realized that his life and the Dark Lord Voldemort's lives have become intertwined in such a way that the only way Voldemort can be defeated is if Harry dies. And while walking to face his doom, Harry remembers this golden sphere in his pocket, which Dumbledore left him, and on it is written, I open at the close. And Harry finally understands, and he whispers, I'm ready to die. And the sphere opens, revealing the resurrection stone, the last of the three deathly hollows that Harry now owns all of, making him the master of death. And he's the master of death because he consents to release his life and trust that good will be done. Okay, another image. Julian of Norwich. Julian of Norwich is a favorite saint of many of us. Uh, she was once perilously ill and near to death. On her sickbed, Julian encountered divine love in a number of visions. And in one vision, she, she sees a small thing, this little round thing like a hazelnut. And she realizes in this vision that it is all that exists and it endures because God loves it. In her sickness, Julian sees that no matter what, all shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. And finally, Jesus on the cross. We've learned to see this as a symbol of violence, the place where divine retribution is being meted out in terrible punishment. But no, Jesus on the cross is Jesus refusing to seize control, consenting to death in knowledge that the goodness of God's peace cannot be crushed. Christ in solidarity with every life that has been crushed by empire, gathering it all together and holding it in the love of God. All of these pictures point at the release of control. Jesus knows that our world is a, is, is a world of violence and a world of fear, and we fear our losses. We fear scarcity. We fear death. And if our image of God is violent too, then we have even more reason to fear, to need control. We fear because we do not see our lives in the light of divine love. And so Jesus, with all gentleness, tells us, if you try to save your life, 
You're going to lose it. But, but if you recall the birds of the air who are fed, if you recall the lilies of the field who are clothed, and if you can lean into trust that you are now and forever held in love, that God sees you with all tenderness, well, then you can release your life and that will allow you to really live it. Why is Christianity good for the world? I would say it's because the way of Jesus creates the leaven of small, local, everyday communities of people who come to see the world in light of love. And these communities can then spread tables that invite others to learn this way too. I don't know for each of you today what pains and scarcity and losses you have held or are holding. It's no small thing to be asked to hold those in trust. That's no small thing. And sometimes we can't manage it. But divine love doesn't need us to get there faster or, or trust better or do it right. Instead, divine love accompanies us on the journey as we learn bit by bit to more and more rest into love. And as we do, as, as we come to see our lives more and more in the light of God's tenderness, and as we come to trust and grow in capacity to release control, then more and more we become the mustard seeds that are breaking forth in peace, in nonviolence, and healing for the nations. Will you pray with me? God, we pray that in and through us, uh, that you would more and more grow us into trust, into love, so that we may become more and more a place of peace. We hope that this sermon inspired you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully. If you don't already support our work, will you begin today? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story.